0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. This is the second Endgame in a week, the second of three. We've got a busy week this week, Bill and I, and we have another phenomenal guest joining us. But before we get to that, here he is, the man himself. Drum roll, please, Bill Fleckenstein.
1: Well, here we are, going to do our first three-peat uh, interview, and especially because um, he suggested we do it, I am very curious to hear what our good friend
0: James has to say. Yes, indeed. James Aitken has, is the only three-time guest thus far on uh, on The Endgame. And, and when James says, there's something I need to talk to you boys about, you, know, you drop everything because uh, there's nobody more thoughtful and there's nobody with a better insight into what's actually happening beneath the surface in financial markets. And as Bill said, if James thinks there's stuff to talk about, who are we to say there isn't? So without any further ado, let's get into our conversation with James Aitken. James, mate, welcome back to the endgame. Uh, it wouldn't be the endgame without you, I have to say that. There's, there's nobody who's, I think, got a keener eye on trying to figure what that is and what it looks like than you.
2: Well, it's good to see you both again. And uh, I just thought we should check in because there's more interesting developments going on, some of them bad, some of them unsettling, a lot of them good for the patient investors that are left in financial yeah. markets. And uh, look, I think I think as we've been chatting about over the past couple of weeks, this uh Pension fund debacle here in London and the United Kingdom, I think, has uh, focused the mind of a lot of people who've been using leverage for many years to keep up with the play. Uh, so well, perhaps we could. Let's,
0: yeah, yeah, let's kick off with that because I, I think yeah. the, the LDI thing has kind of. Everyone realizes it's a thing and everyone realizes yeah. now it's a problem, but I don't think people quite understand what kind of thing and what kind of problem it is. And, and like, you, you and I had lunch last week and, and you. Yeah. You kind of laid it out for me in no uncertain terms. And I felt a chill go down my spine once I understood it better. So perhaps we could start with that.
2: Yeah, and it's it's been around for a long time. But before we even get into LDI, let, let's think about the past decade. Alpha for a lot of people meant structured leverage. You know, if I'm going to keep up with the play, keep up with my benchmarks, keep up with my internal uh, annual return targets you know this mythical seven and a half percent number then look in a in a world where low rates are promised to continue forever central banks are buying assets you've got this thing called the portfolio balance effect well you know what i can't afford to be in cash i can't afford to be defensive i've got to remain fully invested and then the longer the cycle goes on the more i might be tempted into leverage but it's a serious point for a lot of people alpha equaled structured leverage. And and I choose uh, the structured word very carefully. So, not structural, but structured, where you want to increase your exposure and returns to your chosen asset class. You're going to deploy a few derivatives, turbocharge it a bit, borrow a bit of money, simply to keep up with the play. And and to be very clear, in the hands of large, experienced buy-side firms, who have invested millions of dollars in risk technology over the last decade, understand their collateral, their liquidity. It's no problem. But as you both know so well, risk always trickles down to the people who are least equipped to handle it, right? Golden rule of finance. So to me, LDI was a metaphor for a lot of things people did. And and to be fair to the people that invested in these LDI programs. It actually made a lot of sense and it had its origins in an accounting change 20 years ago, right? So if you could provide a solution to uh, pension funds to help them minimize accounting risk, if you will, you know, there was gonna be a lot of demand for that. But starting a decade ago, people started asking questions about LDI. It's like, you know what, it makes a lot of sense now. There's a fair bit of leverage creeping into this. Are pension funds equipped operationally to manage the leverage, the operational side of this, yes or no? And everyone suspected that at some point, if UK rates spiked for any reasons, there might be some problems in LDI schemes. Now, to skip forward for the benefit of our listeners, skip forward to the spring of 2022. Stories emerged. I mean, obviously, UK rates alongside other rates and guilt yields have gone up a fair bit by the spring of 22. And stories started to emerge in the financial press. This is March, April this year, that certain LDI schemes, or should I say pension funds in the UK, were running through their collateral pools. In fact, some of them had run out of collateral to post this variation margin. You're thinking, well, that doesn't sound terribly good. And then in June and July, A couple of asset consultants, Aon and Mercer, were advising pension schemes. You really need to address your liquidity because for accounting reasons, these hedges you have, and let's be clear, the hedges were against rates falling, which would have made pension deficits worse. If you want to sustain these hedges, you've got to post more collateral. You need more liquidity. So watch out, watch out. So these stories are out there. And then more of them emerged in August. And you knew things were getting a bit tight. You knew in August that things are getting tight. You could see the pressure on gilts and everything else. And then along comes Trustnomics. And the point I'd like to make is that a lot of people have been wondering about LDI and the leverage in it for a long time. A lot of people have been wondering what would happen if UK rates spiked for any reason. A lot of people were wondering where pension funds, who for obvious reasons don't carry liquidity buffers because it would be such a drag on return, You know, what would happen if they all had to pony up a lot of variation margin for any reason? And really, the, uh, I'll say genius, somewhat sarcastically, of Trustnomics is that it brought forward, I think, the reckoning for these LTI schemes. It was something that was probably going to happen at some point. It's just that it was brought forward by this hopeless, hopeless effort from Trust and team. Uh, when they tried to deliver their fiscal statement, so that's that's the background. People were looking at it for a long time, and and then the question becomes: What actually happened in technical terms? And it's it's, it's really quite simple. It sounds strange, but what were the why were these UK pension funds uh, selling so many assets? Well, there's two reasons. Firstly, they were trying to meet variation margin calls, so they got these long dated structural hedges. And to be clear again. These long dated structural hedges are largely accounting hedges to minimize any pension funds' exposure to falling rates. They therefore have a large accounting value, if you will, even though they're further out of the money. So, pending an emergency meeting of the pension fund trustees, these guys say, Oh gosh, what do I need to do to maintain that hedge? I need to come up with the variation margin because this is moving out of the money, right? oh, gosh, I don't have cash. Oh, gosh, I'm going to raise cash by selling what? The one thing I do have, gilts, linkers, short-term sterling debt, Aussie AAA, RBS, anything that was liquid, I'm like, I'm going to tap it out to try and raise cash, which is what they did. And you had all sorts of fire sales of relatively liquid assets. But, of course, Grant, the problem is if you're trying to post gilts and gilts are falling in value, then, for margin purposes, it's like trying to fill a leaky bucket yeah. because you're pouring more and more guilts into it and the, your counterparty is saying, more please, more please, because we're trying to keep it on, a, on an even keel and it's not working. So it was a very pernicious um, feedback loop that was underway and it took for the Bank of England to step in to smooth things over, to give everyone time to sort of regroup and think about where they were at. And a fair play to the Bank of England. Their intervention was pretty effective. And we can talk about that as well. But look, it was a, at one level, people had been waiting for this smash up for a long time. At another level, they were a bit unlucky. But again, it's another reminder that often the plumbing is really important. And that if you can't come up with the variation margin to post to your counterparty, then you need to flog other things. Uh, and it became quite a crash up, quite a smash up indeed. But then the flip side is, This distressed selling, this margin call, if you will, on pension schemes provided a phenomenal opportunity for other patient investors to pick up great bits and pieces of paper. Um, Gilts, linkers, short-dated sterling credit, AAA RMBS, the AAA tranches of CLOs, you know, uh, various bits of US dollar securitizations, you know, for the quick hands that were prepared for this. You know, it's always a story of finance. Someone's deleveraging, someone else at the right price will be buying. So there was a risk transfer, if you will, of certain pieces of collateral from somewhat weak hands to the stronger patient capital, um, You know, very high caliber credit and fixed income investors. But it was a brutal process, very unsettling for markets. And um, as much as the near-term LDI leveraging may be complete, I think this episode has really important read-through for other forms of levered duration or other forms of structured structured leverage that may be out there.
0: Well, let's talk about that, James, because that's it, it, a perfect way to describe what happened, and I, and I think that will help a lot of people understand mm. why it was mm. so why it was such a waterfall. And to your point, you, you can see how quickly it stabilised; that people were quite happy to take on some of that collateral on their own books. Yeah. When you and I had lunch, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about this, and it was clear Mm. to me that your concerns about how wide this might go rather than how deep it might go were significant. So let's talk about how this spreads out and, and what kind of a problem it could be.
2: Let's think. The question I've been getting from my clients for the past month and a half has been oh, what else out there looks like LDI? And, and my response, which is a tiny bit cheeky, but only a tiny ch- ch- bit cheeky, is the better question ought to be what out there doesn't yeah, right. look like LDI? Because as we went through the last decade, everything had a bit of a whiff of structured leverage. It's how people kept up with the play. People had to do what they did, and and again, in the right hands, there's no problem with structured leverage. Uh, The incentives were there for the pension funds and everything else, but everything has a bit of a whiff of structured leverage. And it's not just structured leverage exposure to duration, but it's also structured leverage exposure to illiquid duration, and we'll come to that. So, again, I'll say it several times on this call, over a decade and a bit, of very low rates, very low inflation, alpha for a lot of people, equal structured leverage. And that's why we need to think about incentives. Why did people need to take on such duration risk and such leverage and hopefully at the right price, harvest the illiquidity premium? Although I've been cheekily saying it might turn out to be the illiquidity discount, time will tell. Why? Because they had to. And because it's not just central banks, but the incentives were there to keep up low inflation, low implied and realise, well, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to have to take more risk. But you've got a whole, a completely different world that has evolved over the last 18 months, but slowly and now more rapidly. And I would encourage listeners, if they have access, to read parts of the BlackRock earnings call from last week. And the Comments from Rob Capito in particular. He's the president of BlackRock. He's uh hard as nails, as he has to be. He's a very good operator. And he just made the simple point, mate. He said, look, in, in over the decades past, you needed to have a big allocation to alternatives, growth stocks, illiquid, and everything else, if you're going to hit this magical and somewhat mythical seven and a half percent nominal return target, which has kind of been the number for asset allocators everywhere for a long, long time. And by asset allocator, I, I would like listeners to think of slow-moving capital, slow-moving capital that sets a portfolio position and generally sticks with it for a long time. So if I was a uh, an asset allocator keeping up with the play, I needed a lot of risk exposure. No kidding. That was the point of asset purchases. It was the point of holding interest rates down it was to keep financial conditions loose in order to avoid an undershoot of inflation per the narrative and directives, I should say, of central banks. And boy, did the world go to town on that, right? But there's a flip side. And Capito's comments a week, uh, last week on the BlackRock earning call, devastatingly simple, devastatingly simple. And he just said, look, with yields up, and spreads wider. You don't need all the risky stuff. You don't need it. In fact, I mean, this isn't a precise number, but he's making the point. He said, you only need 15% equities and alternatives, and you can be 85% in fixed income and close and, and a little bit of credit. Now, here's the challenge for many of the world's largest pools of capital right now you give them a blank sheet of paper and you say to too many of them, you are still positioned for a regime that no longer exists, how do you get from A to B? How do you, dare I say, pivot your portfolio for a construction that still reflects too much of the previous regime and doesn't reflect the regime where you don't need to take as much risk? It's a very difficult conversation, but I can tell you, It's happening in markets every day. And what happened to these LDI pension funds will very much focus the mind, concentrate the mind of sticky capital anywhere. It's like, hold on a second. We don't need to do that anymore. Now, that does not mean that everyone's out there next Tuesday saying yours, everything. It doesn't mean that. But as much as the fast money in markets today wants to believe we've bottomed in stocks or this, that and the other, or basically the price discovery is over, I would suggest that slow moving capital is going to be an all ongoing organic seller of all sorts of risk assets for a long time to come. And it's very simple. If Uncle Sam right now is going to give me 4.5% on a two-year treasury, if Uncle Sam's going to give me four and a bit percent on a 10-year note, well, I don't need all the other stuff. I right. don't need as much private equity. I don't need as much private credit. I don't need as much private debt. And I certainly don't need leverage. So I still need to have exposure to various assets, but I don't need to turbocharge it anymore. And this, on, this rebalancing has been going on all year. Um, I was disappointed in myself because I missed something important from the Dutch Central Bank uh, in September. They are one of the most sophisticated central banks, and people don't think about them too much because you've got the Bundesbank, the ECB, so people tend to overlook the Nederlandersche Bank. But the work they've done on the financial system and plumbing and everything else over the last 13 years is absolutely world-class. So why does this matter? We have some very big Dutch pension funds, huge Dutch pension funds, and like pension funds everywhere, in that era of very low rates, they had received a lot of long-dated swaps. So in long-dated swaps, they had received fixed rates as a hedge against rates falling. And for a long time, mate, those swap positions were deep in the money. Who cares? And a lot of margin was coming in from their bank counterparties. Well, of course, more and more of these long-dated swaps are out of the money. So these Dutch pension funds are being called for variation margin from their counterparties. And you think, uh uh-oh. Now, happily, these Dutch pension funds are quite sophisticated. So what's this got to do with the Nederlanders Bank? Well, they put out a report, good on them, by the way, in early September, saying that through August, according to Dutch pension fund data, which they have, they have some really good data, Dutch pension funds as a whole de-risked 82 billion euros of risk assets, right? That's year to date. Now, $82 billion in the context of all these markets that are churning around every day done in a strategic way, no big deal. But boy, oh boy, that's a tell. And interestingly, according to the Ned- Nederlander Bank, the big Dutch pension funds did this to boost their liquidity buffers and protect against perhaps ongoing variation margin calls. And given what's just happened, And given where the ECB is going, you'd expect that these Dutch pension funds are going to be deeper out of the money for a time on their long dated hedges. But that's a flavor of what's happening out there. And you don't necessarily see it every day because none of these gigantic pension funds are going to go out and tell Bloomberg that here we go, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to whack every bid. Thanks for having us. But it's an ongoing process, it's an organic process, it's done wherever possible and it's far from complete. And again, it comes back to incentives. It's not just that the LDI guys had a smash up, which they did. They got they got a bit unlucky, but it was always coming. It's that what happened to the LDI guys concentrates the mind of all similarly invested portfolios. I don't mean similarly illiquid. I just mean other portfolios out there that may have been strongly incentivized over the last decade plus to deploy a heck of a lot of structured leverage. You don't need it. And by the way, I know a lot of people are are concerned about the potential for the treasury market and US swaps markets to do something similar to what happened here in gilts and and sterling swaps and everything else. And when I'm asked who's gonna buy all these treasuries, that are on sale, or that the Uncle Sam's issuing. My answer is the entire planet.
0: When you talk about that, I think it's worth saying it out loud that these pension fund hurdle rates, these return rates, I suppose, are nominal, right? It's, it's such an important point to make.
2: Great point. And and the counter argument is, oh yes, but real rates in the United States are generally low or negative. Absolutely right. But this 7.5% number has historically been normal. Now, by the way, how every run it arrived at 7.5%, i am not quite sure. I think well, it might have been... Re-
0: they brought it down from nine. I think that's how they arrived at it.
2: Right, yeah. right. <laughs> but I, I, th- I think it's also reverse engineering for what's a number that's not going to cause us to just keep tipping endless amounts of cash into our corporate pension fund. Oh, phew, let's do that. And by the way, there is an enormous uh, LDI industry in the United States as well. Yes. It's not just UK, right? The best estimates of LDI mandates worldwide are somewhere around $4 trillion, of which, of course, the largest potentially were in the UK, right? But Inside Investment, which is a subsidiary of Bank of New York Mellon, um, going into this mess, proudly proclaimed that they managed 800 and a bit billion of LDI mandates, not just in the UK, not just in Europe, but also in North America. But happily, um, we're not aware of any damage to U.K. pension fund, uh, sorry, U.S. pension funds yet, Um, maybe slightly different hedges, maybe less leverage, all these sorts of things. But, um, you know, maybe they can muddle through.
1: When would you expect that? I mean, obviously, we saw uh, some of that in GILTS last week. When would you expect that wave of buyers to start showing up for treasuries? I mean, I already have. But wait, wait I mean, they haven't made a dent though <laughs> Rel- no. relative to the avalanche that's
2: for sale. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If there are if there are a cash buyer, actually let's take one step back. Okay. And and we'll probably talk about this, but the Fed is very far from done, no matter what people want to believe. They I just I mean, this pivot talk that's been going on for months, I think is just daft because it's not the Fed that needs to pivot, it's investors that need to pivot. Right, and we're all, great, we're all taught when we joined, markers don't fight the Fed. And as best I can tell, Mark has been trying to fight the Fed all year, which I just don't, I just don't understand. Um, but um, in terms of Treasury demand, well, if think about the front end of the curve, if peak Fed funds is now going to be five and a half, then generally speaking, you'd expect the two year Treasury to sort of head towards that number, right? So it's got a bit of a way to go. I mean, obviously, Fed funds, 30 days versus two-year Treasury, there's obviously some difference, but generally expected the front end of the curve to move towards whatever peak Fed funds is estimated to be. And tonight, it's close to 5%, okay? But the money that's coming in to Treasury's drip-dry drip as people de-risk is not impactful yet. And it's not that people are running mark-to-market risk or they're not trying to time it. But they're going to collect more and more of these things because it acts like a giant magnet for all these portfolios. It doesn't mean they're out there buying the long bond, although some people already are. But it does mean that as they progressively de-risk and are able to unwind other positions, they will start to accelerate their purchases of treasuries. And on that happy day, when inflation does peak sometime in 2023. And when the US economy does slow, you would imagine that bond yields at long last are going to fall, which will obviously help the performance of these portfolios. So it's not about market timing for these people coming into treasuries. It's about a structural de-risking. It's about taking advantage of higher yields. And obviously, for all these pension funds, and it's not just pension funds, it's sovereign wealth funds and others. For all these pension funds, though, in particular, higher rates from an accounting perspective are fantastic news because they reduce the net present value of your pension liabilities. And I should just mention on that, higher rates are great news for pension funds in general. They're even great news for UK pension funds because even after this LDI debacle, they all still have funding ratios well above 100%. And if the three of us, were trustees of a pension fund that after that debacle still had a funding ratio north of 100%, well, we'd be strongly incentivized to de-risk, to reduce our use of derivatives, and to buy what we need to buy in cash form, which would probably mean long-dated government bonds. So you're right, Bill, it's not showing up yet, but frankly, you wouldn't expect this footprint to show up Unless and until we've arrived at that point where the market decides that we've hit peak Fed funds, or at least the Fed's gone as far as the Fed's going to go. And then bond yields might trickle down again, but we're not there yet.
0: James, what is this kind of repudiation of leverage, even if it's a a kind of slow moving train? What does that look like in the real world?
2: Do you mean the real world or markets or real economy? How do you well,
0: mean? Well, no, sorry, the, the, in the markets, if we take this away because anytime time you, you hear someone talking about deleveraging and people cutting derivatives in big size, you think increased volatility, you think market dislocations. What does this look like if these funds are incentivized to de-risk and de and that means basically cutting down their, their derivative hedge portfolios?
1: Let me add one element to that. You can tackle it all at once. But these entities that are going to make these decisions are generally run by committees. The committees are going to right. meet. they got to decide right. what they're going to do. They're going to decide, oh, we like that. we got to do more. So this there are going to be waves of this stuff, too. So we're at the very beginning of this. There couldn't have been. And anyway, so go ahead and pack that. No, that's,
2: that's correct. That's absolutely correct, Bill. And, and Grant, when I think about it at the most basic level, I'm a UK pension fund. I use 3x leverage. So I put one pound of capital into some kind of investment-grade credit fund or some kind of lightly levered strategy, and it's levered three times. So my one pound gives the fund manager three pounds of buying power, right? Okay? That's the first obvious case. So if I'm taking the capital back, then the fund manager has less buying power for whatever that asset might be. So the most basic term, you'd think that there's going to be slightly more supply, slightly less demand, and that the equilibrium clearing price, not that we can be precise about this, it's just a concept, but the equilibrium clearing price for any risk asset that's been underpinned by a fair bit of leverage would probably tend to be lower, right? Probably. Probably clear at some kind of lower price. And by design, that would be a fully funded price right? So, if I'm a sovereign wealth fund, I'm like, fantastic, I can buy short-term sterling credit, which they have been, why not? It's widened out a lot. Well, the leverage buyer might pay 95, but the sovereign wealth fund's like, no, I'm 85, and you still get filled, right? So, it, it, it increases supply on the margin. But then we need to get technical, because there's leverage in terms of how we think about people borrowing money, repo and everything else, and then there's leverage in terms of another thing people have done with their risk exposures. Okay. And this is something that's been around for 40 odd years. And it's something that was pioneered by Bill, uh, Bill Gross, uh, Bill and his colleagues at PIMCO 40 years ago. And we need to get a little bit technical here. The bill was worked out. And this is where fixed income and uh, absolute return portfolios are very competitive. You know, if you can improve the return of your portfolio by a handful of basis points, let alone low double digits, that's enormously powerful engine of return as long as you can manage that risk. So what am I saying? Bill figured out that you could generate better returns by expressing your treasury views via futures or your views on corporate bonds via credit derivatives, just to keep it simple. So let's think about what that means in practical terms. The three of us have $1,000 that we want to invest in a treasury mandate. Okay, simple stuff. Well, we could take our $1,000 and put it in a 10-year treasury bond, happy days, and hopefully it does all right. Or, and I'm using stylistic, not actual, but stylistic numbers to explain the point. Or, I could take $500 and buy the same amount of and buy an amount of treasury futures that gives me the same notional exposure as $1,000. All right. So I'm not putting $1,000 in the cash. I'm using futures to give me the equivalent exposure of $1,000. Well, I still got $500 left over. What do I do with it? Well, I sweat it and I invest it in short term corporate bonds, very safe short term corporate bonds, which I know because I'm Bill Gross, to use Bill's example, and I sweat it, or I might reinvest some of that cash in very short-term repo. In any case, I can enhance the return of my strategy by using derivatives to get exposure to the underlying asset, as opposed to just buying the cash bond. Right. And this is this is nothing new. It's been happening for 40 years, and I want to be very clear, in the hands of all the big boys in global financial markets, it's not a problem. They've got the personnel, the risk systems, and everything else to manage it. But let's imagine over 40 years, well, everyone wants to do a bit of that. So I'm not going to buy Treasury bonds. I'm going to buy Treasury futures. And just as an aside here, think about what happened in March 2020 when the Treasury market blew up. And there's this narrative that all these hedge funds were to blame because they were doing these relative value trades between treasury bonds and treasury futures, okay? And they used a lot of leverage because it was a stable relationship and then the bond market blew up. Oh, it's all the hedge funds fault. Well, not really. The more interesting question is why did that basis exist? Why were treasury futures more expensive than treasury bonds? Why is it? that so many of the world's asset managers would prefer to express a view on treasuries via treasury futures. And the answer in part is this, well, I can use the excess cash, reinvest it, make a few basis points more. And that's been going on for a long time, but it's not just interest rates. It's not just interest rate futures, it's not just bonds. It's stocks, it's total return swaps, right? credit derivatives, why would I go out and buy a corporate bond if I can sell the CDS, right, Right. create the same notional exposure, but then I've got cash, which I can carefully reinvest? And I'm going to keep saying in the right hands, no problem, but it requires enormous expertise, the right personnel, crucially, the right risk technology, to manage the collateral flows, the potential margin, right? It's a very intensive business. But a lot of people have done it to keep up with the play. So when I think of leverage, I'm thinking how many people have used derivatives to gain exposure to underlying assets? Is that why the US stock market is all over the place? Are there any cash buyers left? Right, serious point. We know there's all these retail punters trading options, intraday options and everything else. And you can only imagine how difficult it is to hedge the delta and gamma if you're the market maker on the outside of it, right? But what's happening at the back end of all of this is people trying to sweat the cash they think they have saved to generate extra returns. Well, you don't need to do that anymore. I mean, you might still want to do it, but you don't need to do it. So again, if I'm want to take a view on treasuries or corporate bonds or anything else. Do I I need the derivatives? Maybe I do for tax or accounting reasons. It depends. But I don't need to take the same level of risk. I don't need to express my view via derivatives. I can just keep it really simple. And I think there's a lot of that being unwound progressively as the year rolls on.
1: So what you're saying is that the LDI... Yeah, issue is the tip of the iceberg and just manifestation of variations of that same problem. That's uh, right. I- in a different place, and so when you look at it that way, it's a much longer lived headwind, so to speak, that, yeah. that that's going to be with us. And if you're not aware of it, you're going to wonder where the undertow keeps coming from in certain asset classes. Perhaps is that a okay way to say it?
2: I would summarize it as. Price discovery is a bitch.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, James. I mean, that's that's absolutely right. And we haven't had to worry about price discovery for such a long time. But you know, the, nope. the point I keep coming back to in all this is that you know we've had deflationary pressure driving rates and driving markets for you can go back on the on the bond chart forty years. Yeah. We now have inflationary pressure, and yeah, it's a one eighty, right? So literally, it's, this is not a case of the policies that have worked for the last 40 years, the investment strategies that worked for the last 40 years don't work anymore. It's a case Mm -hmm. of you want the opposite policies in place here, right? So it's not that people are going to stop doing what you've just described. They're going to have to actively unwind it and go the other way.
2: Yeah, and obviously some people have been doing that, which is fantastic. I mean there were people that were way in front of this some of the world's largest pools of capital I and mean, then let, let's talk in practical terms because let you know we could I don't want to be too theoretical although it's hugely important to understand some of the plumbing of this but let's go back to the first quarter of 2021 and at least a couple of sovereign wealth funds and this again requires an enormous investment in risk technology they said ooh We're getting some signs that inflation is going to be non-transitory. We're just seeing it on the ground in all these businesses we own, and we know we can see it on the ground. Huh. Let's scrub our portfolio to see how skewed our portfolio is in aggregate. And these are huge portfolios, right? How skewed is it to disinflation and low implied volatility, which is pretty much the same thing? Yeah. Yep. And unsurprisingly, the results come back, mate, and they're like, uh-oh, it's a little bit too skewed to the world that was. And if we're a tiny bit wrong on inflation, then we're definitely going to be wrong on implied volatility. We need to do some kind of overlay to protect our position. And fair play to these gigantic players. They started to do that in early 2021. And to be very clear, it was not a bet on inflation. Uh, it was not a bet on the Fed, it was just like, you know what, we need to dampen the risk or mitigate the risk that we're really wrong, and they turned out to be really right. But at the time, they could buy, and they did, enormous notional amounts of inflation protection, inflation swaps, and all sorts of other things, currency vol, and they managed that. And those things have become deeper and deeper and deeper in the money, as you can imagine, and generated enormous profits. And they're harvesting, this is the clever part, this is why being prepared is a good thing in finance, they're harvesting the enormous profits of those hedges to reinvest in some of these other things that people are, frankly, spewing up, right? Good assets, wrong hands, name your price, happy days, right? Easier said than done when the three, imagine the three of us say, oh gosh, I've had my eye on that uh, AAA CLO, which by the way, might be all right, Oh, someone out there spewing it up! I'll bid ninety-two. Oh, bugger! I just got filled. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you put your bid back at eighty-eight. I'm filled again. It's like, ah, all right. <laughs> but you know, but it's, but it's that kind of men- mentality. But then there's a lot of other people. I mean, you just look at the narrative. You look at price action. You look at reported portfolio positions. And and I can't give anyone precise numbers, which I find frustrating. I mean, we could look at derivative positions that people post. We can look at central clearing. We can look at all of that. And to be very clear, the system's working okay here. People aren't liking all the prices they're getting or seeing, but the system's working okay. It's just getting progressively more difficult for people to lay off or unwind the risk that they feel compelled to unwind or lay off. Um, And I think we've got a long way to go. And and I want to be really clear to our listeners. Sounds a bit scary to some people. Sounds like, oh, gosh, you're very bearish. And as I think we've chatted a few times now, I'm not actually that bearish. I'm just trying to say, look, it's different. We have inflation that's too high still, still quite sticky. We have a US consumer, as per the Bank of America and Citigroup and JP Morgan data these past few days, that is unbelievably strong still in aggregate, yeah, we've got some wobbles in housing. We've got a labour market that's still too tight. We've got labour shortages everywhere, even in London, given what's everything going on, is remarkable. And, you know, what do we expect to happen in markets when you've got persistently high inflation, very tight labour markets, central banks on a warpath, obviously realised and implied volatility is going to go up and things are going to get shaken down. Well, and any really- portfolio...
1: Yeah. Sorry, mate. W- one sec. I got to stop you there. Central banks on the warpath. Well, yes. I guess you could say the Fed because of all the hikes, but we can't really put the Bank of Japan or the ECB, and I don't know where the BOE comes out because they're they're kind of buying them and selling them at the same time. So one central bank might be on the warpath. I, 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 I grant you that, but
2: I never thought I'd say ECB seventy five basis points in a sentence. Right? Yeah. I don't think any of us did. The ECB, into the teeth of what looks like a pretty nasty European recession or slowdown, whoever you want to calibrate it, is determined to hike. Remarkably, the chief economist of the ECB, a pretty accomplished Irishman called Philip Lane, he has completely lost the argument. He's been trying to be dovish all year, and he's lost the argument. And his colleagues are like, yeah, mate, thanks for coming. We're going 75. It's like, wow. Bold. But this, obviously, it's a lower level, but the ECB is talking at least as tough as the Fed on hiking rates. It's a very remarkable thing. So I'd say you're making a good point. The Fed's on a war path. We'll come back to that in a moment. ECB is talking tough, determined to crush inflation, no matter the economic cost, or so it seems. Um, and then you know, Bank Bank of Canada. After today's inflation prints, like no, we know it's we know Canadian housing's risk. Off we go. It's like wowzer, well played, Tiff. That's pretty Tiff MacLeman's the guy's name. It's like, Tiff, mate, good luck with that. You know there's household leverage, but all right, see how that turns out. RBNZ. And this is the funny one, right? Uh, and for obvious parochial reasons, I keep a bit of an eye on the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. <laughs> And historically, there's never, never, a, you know, a, a sheet of paper between them. If one's hiking by the same amount, the other one will be doing the same thing. They, they act together, right? Similar economic cycles, obviously, um, because, Grant, I may get into trouble here, but the East Island economy is quite interlinked. <laughs> it's, 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 quite, it's quite interlinked to the West <laughs> Island economy, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Anyway, but look, the, RBN said the, the RBA said, Um, had this very tough discussion the other week. And it was a 25 or 50, 25 or 50. And they wimped out, oh, 25. And then they tried to explain why they wimped out in their minutes. RBNZ's like, nah, nah. We discussed 50 or 75. It's 50. We're still going. And it's like, okay, mate. Big call. So, Bill, you make a good point that not every central bank is on a warpath, but a lot of them are. Now, Some listeners may be thinking, well, hang on a second, if a lot of these central banks are on a warpath, they're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they see the growth slow down or rise in unemployment that they kind of desire, Um, then if they're all acting in the same direction, perhaps that accelerates us towards the actual slowdown and peak inflation. I do think there's something to that, but we're not there yet. But look, the Fed has been very clear about where they're going. And I I found that head fake in July one of the weirdest things I've seen, right? The market wanted to believe that there was a pivot, even though there was absolutely nothing in the Fed's data. Sorry, the economic data in the US that would suggest the Fed could pivot. The market's like, no, here we go. I know this one. And I'm like, okay, it's summer. Let's step back. You don't want to pick a fight with a summertime northern hemisphere market. You know, sometimes they can overshoot. But, you know, this Fed is on a mission. And I just have this sense that a lot of people are still trying to fight them at a time when secondary market liquidity is diminishing by the day. And to be clear, it doesn't mean it's broken. It just means it's different and it's very difficult. But that's what we learn every time we have high inflation and high realized volatility. What did people expect? It's going to be difficult to distribute risk. So look, there's there's a lot of moving parts here, but I, I'm just nervous, and look, I. It wouldn't surprise me if the S and P 500 is back at 3,500 by Friday. Let's see how good that is, or not. But that's what I'm thinking.
1: Um, can we finish oh. the central bank loop with <laughs> Japan, please? Someday. <laughs>
0: Here we go.
2: <laughs> I. Uh, the yen story this year is one of the most remarkable. Macro developments in many, many, many years—it's huge. And and just to cut to the chase momentarily, the Bank of Japan is intervening against itself, right? Right. Yeah, it's just mental. They it know it is,
1: that it is. What, did it's, you say? Did you say they know that,
2: or you yeah, know they that? They know that. No, they know that. Well, they so, know that. So what's the they're,
1: end game? They're, they're they're as close to the end game as you can be because one of them is going to go. I mean, the end's kind of gone. And we we all know the kind of moral suasion the Bank of Japan and Japan Inc can bring to fight the vagaries of the marketplace for a long time. But it seems like it's kind of game time. There they either give up YCC or the end's going to go completely in the toilet. Not that it hasn't already. How do you see that playing out, James?
2: Well, I I tell you just on the end um, I'm going to date age myself here I remember the morning in Sydney pre Tokyo Open where Dolly Yen got to 14775 and I'm going to say I'm going to say sometime around October 97 or September 97 something like that and I was working on a foreign exchange desk in Sydney so 14775 Dolly Yen is a number that's always stuck in my mind and I wake up the other day and Dolly Yen is punching 149, and I'm expecting that to be all over the Bloomberg News and this, that, and the other, barely a peep. And I'm like, this is extraordinary. Dollar, yen, 150. Dollar, yen, 150. And here we have ongoing yen selling from Japanese investors for a couple of reasons. Starting earlier this year, they wanted to sell some of their treasuries because they were losing money. And they had fully hedged treasury positions, which became over hedged. So they've hedged $1,000 worth of treasuries. They're now worth $800. You sell the treasuries, we well, actually have to buy dollars to unwind your hedge. It's complicated, but that's what happens. Dolly yen goes from one fifteen to one twenty five. I mean, in days gone by, uh, a Kovner, a Soros, you name it, a Drucker-Miller would have been short yen to the eyeballs. And I'm like, I don't think anyone's got this on. Right, exactly. And it just keeps going all through the year. And then August, September again, more unwinding of fully FX hedged treasury positions by Japanese investors. All of a sudden, we're through 140. Who's got it? Oh, you know, I thought it got a bit high in the 130s. I took my position off. It's still going. And here's the interesting bit. Bank of Japan comes in, whacks it on the head the other week, right? Wacks it on the head goes down to around about 140 in a bit. I'm going to say 140.25 off the top of my head. Well, as soon as it got down there, all sorts of bids came in for dollar yen from Japanese investors in the high 130s. They still want to sell yen, right? Bank of Japan knows that. Bank of Japan knows every transaction that goes through the Japanese foreign exchange markets. That's their job. And they know they've got a problem. And despite bludgeoning it, They knew that that intervention to the tune of about $26 billion could only buy them time. And of course, dollar yen is not going to stabilise unless and until Corroda is compelled to abandon yield curve control. And I've been thinking about that all year. And the trade obviously has been short yen, short yen, short yen. And your hedge against that is to have puts on JGBs or somehow paying yen swaps. Yeah. You know, it's it's old-fashioned macro trading. So people, but it, you know, yeah, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, but as I understand it, the, the problem with the JGB put is that, uh, and this may, may not be the case now, but we dove into this a while back. A lot of these bonds are on special, so you're not really getting short at 25 beeps. You're getting short like more closer to 50.
2: Yes, that is correct when you factor in the cost of borrow, but also you could just pay yen swaps, right? You could pay yen swaps if you felt like it. Um you wouldn't completely lay off the risk if your if the yen went up, so your yen short went out of the money, but there's ways of doing it that people have been trying and you know this narrative that we saw earlier in the year: oh all these hedge funds and speculators are short JGBs idiots widowmakers. No. Not at all. No. They were just trying to hedge some of their yen short at that particular time, and it made perfect sense. But not not to get into that, but your okay. point about something's got to break, something's got to give, people don't want to discuss the fact that Japanese inflation, too, is now picking up. There's obviously exactly. the, there's the official Japanese data which comes out, and it's valid. And I think I mentioned this the last time we had a chat. There's also these price indices uh, which are compiled by Hitotsubashi University and it's a broad index of all sorts of Japanese prices, right? Thousands of different prices, retail, everything else. It's accelerating. It's accelerating. corona nice. knows that. Kuroda knows that. But, look, I don't wish to be too um, – uh, 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 I need to be careful here. But um, I don't think there's a tendency for Japanese to throw in the towel. Right? Right. <laughs> But, I'll, just, I'll just say that gently. Right. It's not not their right. natural tendency. But Corroda's trying to hang on somehow until April next year when his term ends. But, of course, they're going to have to announce a replacement sometime in February to ensure it's as smooth as possible. And there is no way that whomever replaces Corroda um, is going to be more dovish right? So you can see this building up and building up. And it strikes us all as strange as we watch this mindless intervention to defend the yen, right? And they've got plenty of ammunition. They can still sort of muscle the market. And frankly, we'd all be surprised, Bill, if there wasn't more intervention to come just to keep us on our toes and stuff like that. That's probably going to happen. But they're smart enough to know that they're just pissing in a bucket, a very leaky bucket. As long as yield curve control remains in place, they know that. Everyone knows that. The U.S. Treasury Department knows that. You know, and that's their problem.
1: So let me just take this one more one more question, and we can move on from this topic. Um, mm.
2: You'll never I move on from
1: this topic, Bill. We both I, know well, that. I know because it's endlessly <laughs> fascinating, isn't non- I mean, here we are, yeah. And they're, you know, um, how uh, how do I say this? Um, let's say they said, mm. okay, listen, we, we got to give this up, and then they let Corona Safe face. And the new yeah. guy comes in and he says, OK, we're going to let the market get loose yeah. a little bit here. What I'd like to know is, what would you think the ramifications of that would be? Or does it really depend on how everything is set up at that moment in time, both yeah. in the world and there as well?
2: You would get to the let's let's game that out. And and the very frank answer would be, as nearly always, it depends, right? Okay. Nothing, nothing is ever a given when we think about finance, um, but it depends, and, and let's try to sketch this out um, by the time the Bank of Japan feels compelled to do away with yield curve control and by the way there can be no forewarning it'll just happen right you can't yeah, you, yeah. You, you can't guide the end of a peg it's just not possible. Right. Right. Um, so it will be in response to overwhelming inflation data in Japan look, they're going to get a little bit of relief with energy prices perhaps, but it's going to be sticky and persistent. And you'd imagine by that point that there'd be enough concerned investors to go, you know what, I'm not going to try and short JGBs. I'm not going to try to predict the end of this, but I'm going to continue to pay yen swaps, which is what's happening, right? You can see what's happening at the longer end of the JGB, the I should say the yen swaps curve. People are like, you know what, I want to hedge. So as we move closer towards that hypothetical event, it will be somewhat more discounted in the price of yen swaps in particular. You'd have to imagine that day would be a bad day nevertheless for JGBs, obviously. But it would also be a very bad day for the Nikkei, a very bad day for Japanese banks, and a very bad day for Japanese insurance companies, you would think. Well, yes, but everything I've said is obvious the really interesting consideration, perhaps, is what are the spillovers, right? And I think that's what you mean. And you'd imagine that there would be a pretty bad day for treasuries, for bonds, for 10-year bonds, 10-year government bonds in most places. Um, But that, again, depends where we'd got to in the interim. I mean, I'm actually wondering if the end of yield curve control in Japan, as dreadful as and complicated as that day would be for so many markets, might actually be the spike top in global bonds. But that's a theory. It's not something anyone can bet on. It's a theory. But so you'd have to say wherever dollar yen is that day, it gets sold off. Yeah. How far how far it gets sold off? Well, we don't know. But if Japanese investors have this ongoing appetite, which they seem to do, to invest. Unhedged in foreign assets, then Dolly Yen's not going to go down very far. It might not if it if it if it happened tomorrow, let's do this. If it happened tomorrow and Dolly Yen's pushing 150, well, I think Dolly Yen goes to 140. But whether it goes beyond that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It would also buy some relief for Asian currencies as well, which is probably not a bad thing. But then so, first instance, it's like, what's the appetite? If I'm trying to calibrate spillovers, I'm thinking, what's the appetite for Japanese investors to invest overseas? My my hunch would be unchanged. And then how far dollar yen ultimately falls, I think it would be a function of what would be happening in global markets because, you know, does the yen revert to its old-fashioned Uh, ideal of a risk-off kind of currency. So the world's getting into trouble. You buy yen, there's deleveraging, there's yen carry trades. Maybe that takes it down to 130. But that's only if other global markets are getting pushed over as well. So I don't actually know, but, but the serious point would be by the time that the Bank of Japan feels compelled to let it go, I would be amazed if there had not been a lot of paying in yen swaps. It would show up somewhere. You'd see it. And the alarm bell I said to a few of my clients, if you ever hear that the biggest Japanese investors are paying 10-year yen swaps, that's all you need to know. It's over. Right? Now, there's no evidence of that yet. But there's your tell. And then it's a serious point.
1: That would be Norin Chukin and those, those groups of guys.
2: Norin can to some extent, but more Japan post back, Kampo, okay. Yucho, okay. Nippon okay. Life, okay. Daiichi. Okay. Di- gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. The, the Daiichis and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but look, I, I feel it's coming. I look, I've said that all year. But in the interim, just stay short the yen and be alive to Japanese inflation, be alive to movements in yen swaps, just keep an eye on things. And most of all, look out for Japanese domestic investors because Japanese, I mean, hedge funds get involved from time to time. Of course, they do in the yen. Trend followers get involved from time to time. Of course, they do. But what has always driven dollar yen forever is Japanese institutional flow. And they have driven dollar yen to where we are. I would say most of it. Um, It's been huge. It's been sustained. It's ongoing. And I find it so surprising that here we are within a whisker of $150 yen which for any of us who've only been in markets 30 years, and I say this very delicately, Bill, for those of us who have only been in thirty markets for 30 years, Bill, um, you know, uh, for those of us who traded you,
1: you, pre-electricity. You, you,
2: you rookies, I <laughs> mean? Us, us rookies. Yes. Um, for, for those of you who traded pre-electricity, you know, nothing's a surprise. <laughs> but, but. Uh, <laughs> But <laughs> anyway, but but look, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so you know you you know your high frequency trading. on uh, Who's got the fastest carrier pigeon? Remember those days,
0: <laughs> James? James yeah. let, let, let me ask oh, you something. Sorry, oh, okay. you said, sorry. I,
1: I took us off a tangent. But, but thanks no, 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 for doing no, no. that. I think that was no, worthwhile. That was right.
0: a, a worthwhile detour. James, you said something yeah. to me at lunch that you then wrote in Notes from a Small Island that you then touched on at the beginning of this conversation. And it's been around my head ever since you said it to me at lunch. And I think it's such a phenomenally brilliant point that I hadn't really thought about until you kind of phrased it so perfectly. And you said... What did uh, I say?
2: No, don't tell me. I said, who's going to pay?
0: No, 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 no. Listen, you know I forgot my wallet. I I, I deliberately made sure that I forgot my wallet accidentally. You already Um, knew the excuse before he showed up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 tell me about it. just called it. It was a hedge. Uh, It was a hedge, that's all. uh, Um, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. He said, everyone's waiting for the Fed to pivot, but it's not central banks that require it. It's investors that need to pivot. And it's such a brilliant, brilliant point that I hadn't Conceptualise it in that way. So, so, talk a little bit about that and what that means, because we all know what a Fed pivot means. It means happy days, right? And everything goes up. Yeah. But talk about what it means if investors realise that they need to pivot.
2: Yeah, well, I've been using I've been using this uh, phrase, you know, the the everybody gets a trophy investment yeah, just, market is <laughs> over, right? No, just a piece oh, well done, yeah. Well, well done. You finished seventh, but you're still up fifty percent. <laughs> you know, um, but um, that's over, and it's over, and it died in the summer of 2021, when inflation was non-transitory. But to be fair, it's very hard for us humans to unlearn things. If something's worked very, very well for a long time, it becomes kind of automatic. And it's very difficult to sort of unlearn what's worked and move in a different direction. It actually requires huge discipline and a lot of courage, because you might look a bit stupid versus your peers for a period of time. But that's the way the great investors survive. They're happy to look a bit silly if they believe something. And we've moved back into a world. I mean, I, I think it's obvious, but I'll say it: we've moved back into a world where, it, where where investing used to work. You didn't scrape and bow before whatever central banks told you to do. And and I fear that too many market participants. One of the takeaways of the last decade is that financial markets are part of central banks operating functions and they are not they were during an exceptional period where inflation was too low as judged by central banks and the only way they could underwrite inflation was by always and everywhere ensuring that financial conditions never tighten too much right but markets thought that believed they've got our back forever well yes as long as inflation is low, and it isn't. It is not low, it is high, it is sticky, it is persistent. And we're back into an investment environment, shockingly, where you choose your asset because you understand it, you study it, you analyze it, you value it on its merits, um, pricing in a bit of conservative estimates of the asset in question, you buy it, and you wait. Now, if a central bank eventually comes along and says, yes, we're going to pivot, happy days. But you're buying assets now, not because of a Fed view, but because you understand the asset, you understand it on its merits, you've valued it fairly, you've put in a bid, you're filled, and you wait, right? Don't expect instant validation. Do, don't predicate a portfolio on a central bank put or anything else or a pivot, don't count on it, right? So it's back to investing 101, and I think it's long overdue. Now, a lot of people find that very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. But that's okay, because as we've seen with the LDI situation, you are starting to see some really good assets get shaken loose, right? You really are. I mean, a serious point. If Norin Chukin doesn't want to buy AAA CLOs, serious point, and someone else out there needs to spew them out, like a UK pension fund who should never own them in the first place, and I can bid for them at 80-something, and I know that I've got a massive amount of subordination below me, that is a no-brainer. If I can buy short-duration sterling corporate credit, particularly if it's issued by a foreign borrower with no UK earnings and strong global earnings. That's a no-brainer, right? Gilts and linkers at the right price. And I should just add briefly, boys, that um, when the dust settles, these UK pension schemes are going to return to buying linkers in enormous size. Now, there's going to be a sort of a lag, but they're going to come back because they need these linkers. And, you know, to think that the 2068 linker went from 337 Last December to 42 in the middle of this blow up, and it's now 112, but it went to 42, 136, 70, uh, 68, and now it's 112. What? I mean, it's like, Bill, try this on, man. It's like trading Japanese warrants. Yes.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> over, <right>? the <laughs> over the counter. Ca- over the counter over the counter with that carrier pigeon. But look, it's um it just requires a different mindset. And we need to pivot we need to pivot. And over the past 48 hours, there's been another important development in Fed speak, right? Central banks don't often pivot. When Powell stood up in Jackson Hole and said, yeah, I've torn up my prepared remarks. I want to talk about inflation. It's too high. What are you all looking at? Right, That's an important moment. And even though Jay Powell stood up and said that, People have been second guessing the Fed. And I just think that's mad. And you look at the data that's coming out. Now, to be clear, yeah, guess what? We're probably past peak inflation. Great. But as we're seeing, it's going to be going to require some persistent hawkishness to get it down. And then if you believe the Fed, once they get to whatever peak Fed funds is, they're going to hold it up there just to be ultra safe. Now, on that, Let's imagine the Fed funds gets to five and a half percent, and the Fed says we're done, or we're going to pause, but we're going to hold it up here as the economy slows. Well, that's an incremental tightening, right? And that's very different to what we've all experienced. But here's what's happened over the last forty-eight hours, and we're all accustomed, we think, to Tim Arouse at the Wall Street Journal, who's a lovely, lovely fella. He gets the drop from the Fed. He's the guy. He's the scoop. Well, unfortunately for Nick. He did a New York magazine expose recently. Um, no, to be fair, he didn't claim he was the guy. I'm just the Wall Street Journal chief economist. But yeah, I'm and the title of the New York Mag article, New York magazine article was the guy that with the J Powell's Fed whisper or something like that. Well, unsurprisingly, the Fed weren't too hot on that idea. Yeah. And then, and then this time, uh, roughly this time yesterday, the young Fed correspondent of the New York Times, who's excellent, she dropped a little column. And I'm like, this is interesting. I better read this. I'm reading it like, my gosh, this is a deliberate direct message from the Fed saying that we thought we'd be discussing how to slow down rate hikes in, in November. We can't. We think we might discuss them at the December FOMC. We're not sure. We're going to have to keep going because it's just too hot. U.S. nominal demand is too high, which is true. And I'm reading that, and I said to a couple of my macro clients, I mean, was very lucky I was in front of the the machine when the story popped up. I'm like, did you see that? And they're like, see what? And I said, I think the New York Times girl just got the Fed drop because they put Timmerhouse on the naughty step. And I thought it was a really big deal. And I look at my prices on the Bloomberg, I'm thinking, man, all these – Sofa futures, you know, the replacement of euro dollar futures, they're all getting beaten. Nothing's happening. I'm like, this is weird. That is clearly the Fed trying to get a message out. Okay, maybe I've got it wrong. I wake up this morning, I turn on the Bloomberg. Craig Torres, the Fed reporter on Bloomberg, he's got a story out saying that, oh, at the last FOMC, the September FOMC, Fed staff changed their projections and basically said that there's less productive capacity in the US economy. Therefore, you're going to have to be more persistent with hikes and really hold the line on hikes because otherwise you're not going to have an impact. Well, All of that was known to anyone who follows the Fed and reads the minutes and listens to what the Fed is saying. So why are you coming out and saying it again? What's the message you're trying to give to markets? And it's the same message the Fed's been trying to give to markets for months. We are going to keep going, right? We can't afford to stop. Okay, Lyle's out there a bit worried about financial stability. Oh, you know, reasons to stop. She's losing the argument. Okay, she's talking about important things, but she's losing the argument. And what the past, not 48 hours, 24 hours tell me, is that the Fed wants markets to prepare for what's coming, and it's only today where you're starting to see some of these stir markets get chinned. You're starting to see, you know, people reprice the Fed again. Now, look, asset allocators listening in will say, "So what? The Fed funds futures is up another thirty basis points in terms of yield. So June Fed funds is from four sixty to best part of five percent." Okay. Maybe they get to five and a half. Who cares? And I'm like, mate, if the labor market does not now soften, they're going to six, and that's an uncomfortable one because that are faster. Yeah.
1: Sorry, one question. I want to. I want to be sure we get to. I didn't mean to cut you off there. It's all right. You've talked about how prevalent the concept is of the pivot, and mm. uh, but but it seems to me an unspoken assumption here mm. when whenever the Fed is discussed is that they will be successful. That assumes that they get to where they wanna go, the the inflation cracks, but it's all the assumption that, and then we're gonna get back to where we were. So we got the pivot people who say, we're gonna pivot so we can go back to partying. And then we have the more thoughtful people say, well, the Fed's gonna accomplish this. And then we'll get back to a, a, a variation of what we had before. It, to me, is not a foregone conclusion that they will be successful because there is a non-trivial possibility that Mm -hmm. as these dislocations related to LDI that you've discussed start to cause dislocations and people to get afraid, while the Fed is very good at talking a tough game, I am obviously biased. But if we're objective about this, they haven't done a spectacular job of spotting problems in advance and so, how confident should people be that the Fed's going to actually pull this off? I'm not saying a soft landing. I'm saying mm. they're going to get the inflation genie back in the bottle and then we can go back to the world that everyone is rooting for. Mm. Uh, do, do you, do you understand, understand my question?
2: Yeah, I do. But for the benefit of listeners, can I just clarify? You said you were biased on the Fed. Is that, is that a fact? <laughs> I just well, want to check. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I, I thought, I thought you must have misspoke or something, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm slightly biased, but listen, I didn't try I, to put words in your mouth. I waited all this long to ask this question. I,
2: be, I know you have. Um, look, it's let's break it down into its components, and let's think about what success might mean. Okay. okay. Yeah, and we can think about what success means for us in markets and what success might be defined by the Fed. I would would say for the Fed, I'm not guessing, for the Fed, success would be that the labour market has started to loosen and and you can say with a straight face that inflation is on a path back towards this 2% number. Now, to be clear, that does not mean inflation is at 2%. 2%. But you can say with a straight face that we feel we've done enough because we're analysing the situation. We're seeing it in the actual economic data now. Demand is slowing. Unemployment is up in brackets, hopefully not too much because that'd be a political problem. And you can say to markets that it's not just our forecasts, but we can see a path, a credible path back to 25 or 2%. We're going to continue to hold rates at a high level, just to be sure. But policy is now symmetrical. They may not use that word, but they all imply that rather than asymmetrically skewed towards hikes, it'd be symmetrical. The point being, we're not there yet. Now, that's from the very narrow Fed's perspective. What kind of landing that implies, I'm not sure. But you look at the history. Look, if you're drawing a Venn diagram of Fed and soft landings, I'm not sure that overlap, (laughs) which is is your point, right? Which is your point. And it's true. There's always something that doesn't quite work out or they go a bit too far or they think they can normalize rates. So you notice the narrative at the moment. We're going to keep going until all short-term rates are positive in real terms. Okay, so we're going to keep going. So we've got more work to do. And there's a tell. And I think they're probably right. Because macroeconomics 101 tells you that if real yields go up too much, and this has been the problem for 25, 30 years, you know, to avoid a liquidation event uh, since the mid-1990s, we've had to bring real yields down and down and down to bring forward more and more consumption from the future. And that's how we've avoided a great collapse in financial markets, right? Generally, generally. So there's a number out there for 10-year tips, right, which have gone up a lot heading towards 2% not there yet there's a number out there where the economy probably just goes no and i don't think it's a gradual process i don't know what that number is i don't think the fed knows what that number is i think we're all wondering what that number is but we're not there yet but i will say some i will say something else and and this is an important point there's all sorts of people out there who have been shouting about a recession for 18 months. And I think it's some of the dumbest commentary I've ever seen. It's just ridiculous, right? But the number one predictor of recession is not mortgage rates. It's not house prices. It's not mortgage spreads, credit markets, the stock market, or anything else. It's when the Fed starts cutting rates. Just think about that, right? Now, the Fed starts cutting rates because it's so obvious that we're heading for a slowdown then you'd imagine that forward-looking investors, particularly on good companies trading at good prices, would have already responded to that and will pivot accordingly. But the point is, Bill, we don't know what success looks like. We have a sketch. And right now, around about now, the, the Fed was hoping to articulate a strategy and framework for how they might think about slowing down. Right? They were. And that's been postponed, and it's a very hard one to do because if you try to bring inflation down and slow demand, the last thing you want actually is a repeat of what we saw in July. That's the last thing you want. Right. Where financial conditions right. loosen again, everyone's going, "Oh, all clear mortgage rate. Let's go buy." Yeah. So it's it's a very tricky one. But look, the implicit in your question is, if I may say so, what is the probability of a soft landing? And I'd say probably low lowish number
1: let me clarify i didn't mean a soft landing because i think that's that, that's that's too trivial of a probability i yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. really more interested in what is the chance that something pops up and it breaks something badly and then they have to take that into account before they get the little checklist that they want to get to it's not really knowable but it might be worth speculating about it. and maybe not
2: yeah i Okay. Let's think about market structure then. What could go wrong? Well, there's lots. It's it's interesting that normally about now you see some kind of funding premium creep into dollar financing markets as we approach year end. Mm-hmm. People start to price in, it'll get a bit tight. People are less willing to put their balance sheet out and lend and everything. Well, it's it's interesting right now that you're not seeing much of a year-end funding premium creep into anything, which tells you that there's a lot of funding liquidity around at a price, mm-hmm. but so far so good. What would be awkward for the Fed, and you can see Lale Brainard is already wondering about it, is if we have more LDI kind of incidents and right. I'd say there has to be there has to be more out there that we're yet to uncover. There has to be. Yeah, that's what I think and, too. And again, it'll be dramatic when it happens. Uh, my bet would be, as it always is, leverage in the wrong hands that overstayed its welcome. So the assets they own might be fine, but the structure is wrong. It's mm-hmm. often the case, isn't it? Yeah. And and you've got to expect more shakedowns along the lines of LDI, especially in the context of what we've discussed thus far. But whether that is enough of itself to convince the Fed to chicken out of hikes, it remains to be determined. Right. But it's certainly a very different investing environment for all of us. But then on the on the plumbing. You know, we had a bit of a wobble in September 2019, a big wobble. at the epicentre of our global financial system, which is Treasury repo. I mean, if Treasury repo doesn't function terribly well, then nothing really functions terribly well. And the system got too close to breaking point because reserves were getting low. And for the benefit of listeners, reserves are what regulated banks have at the Fed. So if the Fed's buying a Treasury bond from J.P. Morgan, it credits J.P. Morgan's account at the New York Fed. Those are reserves. And reserves only circulate between regulated banks and the Fed. They're very useful. They're the most liquid, high-quality asset that banks can have and therefore very valuable. But you need a minimum amount of them in the system to allow the JP Morgans, the Goldmans, the Cities, the Bammels, et cetera, to intermediate risk and repo and treasuries in particular. And in September 2019, we just got too low. The Fed thought there was still a buffer, but we got too low. And in July this year, the Fed revised up again their guesstimate of the minimum number of reserves that's required for the system to function in a smooth way. And I think I've got this right, but the New York Fed said it's $2.3 That's a number we need to watch, okay? And we can watch it on Bloomberg, but that's the number we need to watch. And the Fed has suggested... They're going to watch that as well. And then if they get to within 300 billion of that number, 2.3 trillion, minimum reserves in the system, they might rethink the method of quantitative tightening and other such things, but nobody really knows. And that 2.3 trillion number could turn out to be the wrong one again. It might turn out to be a higher number, right? We don't know. But if I was to imagine something that might embarrass the Fed a bit again, It would be some kind of rerun of what happened in September 2019, where we run out of the balance sheet to intermediate Treasury repo and everything else. Now, as as fellow plumbers on the call would know, or anyone working in repo markets would know, I have paraphrased the situation and sketched it out. But that's something I think we need to focus on. What is the minimum amount of reserves the system needs to function? And then it gets more and more complicated for the Fed. If they're trying to talk Orkish while helping intermediate treasury repo markets again, you mean, how do you you hold that narrative together? It's really awkward. So look, I think it, it is interesting, again, that people might not like the price they're getting for the things they're taking profit on or rotating away from now. But markets are actually working. They're illiquid. They're nasty. There's gap risk. But you can actually get things done if you have to get things done. Um, And that's part of this process. But the Fed's vigilant because they're worried. And the final point on the plumbing is that quantitative tightening this time is going to be quite different to 16, 17, et cetera. And the Fed knows that because banks are penalised for having too much excess institutional deposits, they're penalised. So unlike previous hiking cycles, Jamie Dimon is not going to bid to win any new big deposits. He doesn't want that because it has a capital charge with it and it's a drain on JP Morgan's um, uh, capital and everything else. So he's going to raise deposit rates but not buy as much as he would have in the past. So what's going to happen? The money that's on deposit at JP Morgan will say, thanks, buddy. Um, I take the hint. I'm going to go somewhere else. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go to money market funds. What are the money market funds going to do? They're going to turn around and sling it back to the New York Fed because it's the best game in town. But that rusts the pipes of the plumbing because those the, the, the deposits at J.P. Morgan are much more useful for the financial system and intermediation in general than deposits that are locked away in a money market fund, which can only invest in a very narrow range of instruments. So I think of money moving from bank deposits to the New York Fed's reverse repo facility, and there will be a lot of it. It rusts the plumbing, it slows things down, it's a handbrake on risk intermediation, um, as intended, right? They want to slow things down, but it means if we think markets are a little bit tricky now, in terms of shifting risk around, I think they get trickier still. And and Fred, it goes back to your first point, There will, unfortunately, be people who have misjudged this process. Uh, They have not invested in the technology to optimise their internal liquidity. Uh, They have not had the budget for it. They haven't got the personnel. They haven't looked at all the derivative documentations. They haven't optimised collateral, dot, dot, dot. And basically, they, they haven't thought about market liquidity. And it's going to be a challenge but what did people expect? This was never going to be an easy process. It was never going to be easy. But lest I sound too pessimistic, I've got to say, all I'm doing is describing what to me at least appears to be the obvious. It's a a different regime. It's going to be tricky. It was always going to be tricky if inflation showed up because different assets would move, Realized vol would be higher, and we'd need to own different things. And that's always the way, you know, we just need to adapt and pivot and it's far from the end of the world. And as I keep reminding my clients, you know, it's no sugarcoating how hard this all is for all of us. It's really hard. But for the patient investor that's done his or her homework, it's pretty exciting where more and more often you're able to name your price for something that you understand really well. It might be something, Fleck, that you've been looking at for a decade and thought, man, I really want to have that. I'm not paying that. I'm not paying that. I'm not paying that, mand- uh, that multiple. I'm not reaching for it. And finally, it's starting to screen well. And that's going to happen more and more, and that's okay. hmm
0: I think that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a perfect place to wrap it up, James, because I think that's exactly it. I think that, that idea of patient capital finally having its day in the sun and the ability to not be forced into paying stupid multiples for things just because that's the only way you can get them. You know, you're right. There have been people that have sat on the sidelines for 10 years thinking, I'm just refusing to pay those levels for this stuff. And and you're right. I think you, you get the chance now to potentially own stuff that you can then hold on to. You know, It puts it into very solid hands if you get them at the right level.
2: I think uh, anecdote does not equal evidence, but I can tell you anecdotally that every hedge fund manager I've spoken with over the past three weeks here in London has been buying gilts and buying linkers. And people say, well, are they mad? It's like, no, there's no capital gains tax on gilts. So for the UK domiciled UK taxpayer, it's a no-brainer because it's like opening a deposit account. And when gilts were at their wides, right, uh, or at their lows, I should say, in terms of price, it's like opening a bank account, a tax-free bank, capital gains tax-free bank account that's going to pay you high single-digit interest. Sure. What what are you going to do? And, and there's going to be more, more of that to come, and that's okay. But it's going to be difficult for people who unfortunately, like some of the LDI funds, misjudged their ability to access markets because they misjudged their liquidity buffers. And to Bill's very good point, there has to be more players like them yet to be uncovered. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. That was a lot to think about. Oh, boy. Yeah, James, that was –
0: no, James, uh, I have to show you this. Thank you for calling this meeting, mate.
2: Yeah. My pleasure.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> what are you going to show me? He's like, hey, there's something I've got to show you. I'm you like, see it? Dude. Oh, you got it. Excellent, excellent. Douglas Wass uh, declined to fall. Uh, yep. The chronology of the uh, 1976 IMF debacle, written by a leading Treasury staffer at the time. What was Her Majesty's Treasury? Now Her His Majesty's, Majesty's treasury. treasury. Yep. Um, it's an amazing book of incompetence, <laughs> but also, but but <laughs> I also. Wrote, how- I
1: wrote one about an incompetent guy too.
2: <laughs> yes, you. Yes, you did. Um, uh, but look, it's uh, it, it's. It's a very tricky time because a lot of what's happening is under the surface of financial markets. A lot of people can't see it. To be fair to regulators, there are still massive data gaps in large corners of the financial system that we still can't see. And if we can't see it, we can't map it. We can't understand it. Like huge parts of what's called the um, collateral transformation market. Now, I don't mean repo transactions. We've got a lot of data on that. But we can see if someone's financing Treasury with cash and cash versus collateral repo transaction. We've got all sorts of data on that. But collateral versus collateral, it's, it's still a bit of a dark corner of finance, and it might be a $3 trillion part of the financial system. And it's hugely important the way people swap their assets and upgrade collateral for fee to pledge and post, and the multiplier effect of that is what keeps the lights on. We don't have any data on that. No, that's not quite true. We don't have accurate data on that, right? We have securities lending data, but we don't have the full picture. And that's the thing I'm worried about is what's actually going on there. If a pension fund says, yeah, look, um, you know how I lent you my stuff? I want it back. Yeah. Well, how does that work? You know, and it's not just people that are swapped investment-grade corporate bonds for treasuries. It's people that have swapped T bills for gilts or oats for bunds and all this stuff that happens all the time. Or the people that have swapped JGBs into other currencies because it gives you a synthetic yield pickup. All of that stuff, right? We've got some data on it, but I'm thinking about all of that a lot because, again, go back to first principles with investing, which is incentives. If Uncle Sam's going to give you 4.5% on the two-year treasury, soon perhaps to be five, maybe even five and a half. Mm-hmm. If we're going to get four and a half to five on a 10-year treasury, it changes the incentives massively and it acts as a giant sucking sound from other risk exposures. And I think markets are fighting that.
0: Yeah, beautifully put. James, uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this, mate. I enjoyed our lunch and I, I and I enjoyed this just as much, uh, but without the wine. So, so thanks for taking the time to spend another hour and a half helping Bill and I understand what the hell's going on.
2: Well, you're both very great mates. It's great fun to hang out with you both and try and untangle a few things uh, for the benefit of your listeners. You're doing a great service to people, right? Because this is not, anyone who thinks this is easy is out of their mind. It's Can not supposed not- to be easy. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> no. it's not supposed to be easy. But, uh, you know, as Bill knows, I, I think of, um, certain producers in the Northern Rhone as the ultimate source of non-recourse liquidity.
1: <laughs> well, there are some in Burgundy too, mate.
2: Oh, I bet there are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll all have to get together and test that thesis. Yes, we will. Well, uh, I, I second that.
2: Well, I, I think that's- Well, I tell you, just a final thought, I promise. Um, you know, you know things are getting pretty tough when you start to see B wicks of fine wine. You know, B wicks bids wanted in competition in credit markets. That's part and parcel of credit. People want to sell structured credit. They are put go to all these different brokers. Bids wanted in competition. When you start to see them in fine wine, like last Friday, this yeah, enormous... that was
1: amazing. What you did? Did that thing oh. trade? Did that? How fast did that thing
2: trade? Do you know, I don't know. That's what I'm trying to find out. But okay. if it went all, at, if it went all at once, that would be fascinating. But well, if, you know, you start it. Yeah.
1: When you get the data, would you would you share with me, please?
2: I'm very curious. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, bid low, bid often.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to Wine Talk with James Aiken and Bill Fleckenstein. Please join us again next week when we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll look at Valpolicella. No, we won't.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we bloody, No, I can assure you, we bloody won't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, James. Thank uh, you, uh, uh, mate. Uh, a pleasure right. as
0: always. A lot, thank you so much. Thanks, guys.
2: Go well. Right, see you later. The <laughs> take care. Oh, I heard that. <laughs> I, lo- I know you did. <laughs> so rude.
1: Why do I? Why do I work with these idiots? <laughs> Thanks a lot, mate. That was great.
2: Bye. Bye. I'm leaving Bye. that in.
0: See you. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I wow. will tell you what. Uh, you know what? <sighs> James is just the best. He's he's so much yeah. fun, but. Boy, nobody knows this shit better than him. You know what's interesting about doing these things? I've I've learned is I spend so much time
1: concentrating on what's going on, so I can follow it and see if I can think of something useful to say, and not try to lead the witness.
0: I have to then go back and listen to it,
1: yeah. to get yeah. the full benefit of what it was he said.
0: I totally agree. I, I I always find that when I listen to this, when I'm not in the moment thinking about the next question to ask, it's a whole different experience. You know, yeah, listen, exactly. listen to it's James, without different. without constantly thinking okay what am I going to ask him next you can just sit yeah. back and soak it all up I mean it's yeah. just he's he has a remarkable brain and he's just um he's just the most spectacular company I just I just I can't yeah, spend enough I time with James he's fantastic well I mate mean, there's not much else to say other than I'm gonna go and have a good stiff drink and uh, uh, <laughs> and go for it's a little walk, early for me I gotta go to the gym first all right well, we'll <laughs> okay. gym first then stiff drink yeah. Um, listen, oh. uh, our thanks to you out there for listening, for sticking with us through this. Um, hopefully you'll listen to it a couple of times yourselves and, and figure out what the hell we've all been talking about because Bill and I are going to go and try and do that. Uh, you can follow us if you don't do that so on Twitter. It's very easy to do. You can find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at Fletkapp, still. And importantly, you can follow James Aitken at Aitken Advisors and uh, I would very much recommend you to visit and then bookmark his website aikenadvisors.com James has a blog on there which he by his own admission doesn't write enough uh, on but he has promised me that he is going to try and put more on this so aikenadvisors.com is James's website and um, everything you've heard in the last hour and change is just the tip of the iceberg for, for how much brilliant thinking James does so I would urge you to follow him we'll be back with another end game soon we have another conversation lined up in a couple of days uh, Bill and I are both looking forward to that we'll be back in your inbox in the not too distant future thanks for listening